This is The Weekly for May 17th, 2019. I'm Steve Scully in Washington. With talks between Beijing and Washington now at a standstill, it appears as if the U.S. and China are at loggerheads on a trade deal. The threat of tariffs is now a reality. Industries are calibrating what it may take to deal with a long-term trade war. And questions remain on what impact it will have on the American economy as we head into another presidential election. We turn to the Washington Post Global Economics Reporter for analysis and answers on what's ahead. David Lynch, as somebody who has spent much of his career studying the trade issues and following the developments between the U.S. and China, based on the events of the last week, week and a half, are we in for a long-term trade war? It's certainly starting to look that way. If, if you go back, uh, you know, to a week or so ago, uh, we were on the verge of what seemed like, in the words of Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, a historic trade deal. And since that time, things have gone south between the two countries. Uh, the latest U.S. action uh, against one of China's highest profile companies, the telecom giant Huawei, uh, is a real shot across the bow of the Chinese. It's not yet clear how they'll respond to that. But uh, the atmosphere has gotten quite poor. Uh, and uh, I think the next few weeks will tell the tale. What is a tariff? Who pays for it? And how are they implemented? A tariff is just a fancy word for a tax. And uh, in fact, for most of the early years of the United States, that's how the government raised its money. There was no income tax back in the 18th and 19th century. So the way the government got money was if you wanted to bring in something from England or Paris or anywhere else, you had to pay the government a fee, a tariff, to get it off the dock and into the United States. And that's the same today. So when the president talks about tariffs, um, he's talking about taxes. They're paid by American companies uh, and ultimately American consumers. Certainly in the first instance, the literal physical payment is from a U.S. broker acting on behalf of, say, Walmart or Target or General Motors, whatever buyer there is bringing that product in. And then depending on the particular product and the particular industry, more or less of that tariff will be passed through to the consumer. Uh, there are some products that it's possible to imagine the Chinese exporter perhaps lowering its prices a little bit to help its American customer. If it's afraid, it will lose the business. But the academic studies that have been done that have looked at the real-world effects of the last year or so of President's Trump's tariffs, show that the American consumers and American businesses are paying almost the entire financial burden. I want to come back to those points in just a moment, but if you follow the markets, it's been really a roller coaster, down significantly and then up again. Why such a, a, a wide swing? Well, I think for a long time uh, this year in particular, and, and certainly since late last year, the markets had convinced themselves uh, that the president was headed for a deal. And there was sort of a symbiotic relationship between the two. The, the market story was that the president, looking at the markets, was afraid that a, a no-deal outcome would cause the markets to go down because we had a little wobble to that degree late last year. And so to head off further market declines, the president started talking up the prospects of a deal. The market looked at that and concluded 
he's afraid of us. He, he wants a good market outcome just like we investors do. So there's going to be a deal. And, you know, if you go back and look at the president's statements, you know, really starting in February, he was talking about having a signing summit with President Xi Jinping of China as soon as March. That, of course, never happened. And he every couple of weeks would say, I think we're on the verge of a deal. Good things are happening. We're going to get this done. Um, and yet here we are, you know, most of the way or halfway through May and still nothing. And things are starting to look bad, not good. And as you follow the president, he has said that the U.S. is in a much stronger position economically than China. Is he right? In the short term, there are reasons to, there's a logic to what he's saying. Certainly, the first quarter uh, economic performance in the U.S. was above trend. In other words, we're now growing faster than economists would think we can grow in the long run, over 3% in the first quarter, which is quite good, and particularly at this stage of the expansion. Remember, uh, since the Great uh, Recession of 2008-2009, the economy now has been expanding since the end of June 2009. So next month, we will be at a record in the history of the United States for the longest ever unbroken expansion. That's quite something. Unemployment is now at its lowest level since December of 1969, which I remember because I've been around that long. So the president has a lot of things to brag about in terms of the economy. The question, though, is, you know, will that last and will it last in the face of a trade war? There's already some signs that manufacturing in the U.S. began to turn down in the middle of the last year. Uh, but the president then looks across the Pacific at the Chinese economy. And even before the trade war began, China was trying to deliberately slow its economy from its much faster growth. Remember, they're still a developing country, so they're growing at twice the rate we are, but they have a lot of poor people that they have to have to put to to uh, work profitably. Um, so China was trying to slow, but trying to do it in a gradual way to wean themselves from a reliance on too much investment and to make it a more sustainable long-term outcome. That's a difficult thing to pull off. And so the trade war came at a bad time for China. They, they were already preoccupied with a tough economic challenge. This made it tougher. And that's why the president thinks he's in a stronger position. I ask you about that because giving full credit to Maura Lyson of National Public Radio, she said that for this president, for Donald Trump, the stock market and the unemployment numbers, those are his Nielsen ratings. And if they begin to falter, does that put the president in a weaker position? I think there's the potential for that. What has begun to strike me lately is that I think the president's reliance on the market is not quite as short term as some of us might have thought. In other words, you know, the market has really gone sideways for the last 16 months. The, the Dow is now below where it was when he began putting tariffs on products back in January of 2018. Um, so by the very simplistic argument of, well, all he cares about is the market. So if the market doesn't do well, he'll cave and accept any deal. That's not true. And I think what we've seen with some of the latest rounds of the tariff escalation is, you know, the president is standing uh, firm, for lack of a better word, in the face of political blowback uh, from Senate Republicans and the face of some economic and market blowback. And I think it's because 
If you look at Ambassador Lighthizer, the chief trade representative, his argument is that there is going to be short-term pain in this trade war, but that we have no choice. And and the potential benefits of rebalancing the relationship, putting on a putting it on a sustainable footing where the Chinese are not stealing American technology willy-nilly, that that is a benefit that's worth some short-term pain. Which goes back to a piece that you wrote earlier this month. It's available online at WashingtonPost.com. Quote, the biggest obstacle to success may be their rival understandings of the past. And you go on to say China has an unbroken record of cheating and broken promises. That's certainly the administration's view. Um, They look at the last almost 20 years since China was uh, granted entrance into the World Trade Organization and the global trading system. And they say, they, the administration, say, look, we've had lots of dialogue with China. We've had lots of agreements. They've promised, uh, there's literally a list of 10 times uh, in a USTR report where the Chinese have said, we're not going to require foreign companies to surrender their technology as a condition of doing business in China. And yet they continue to do so. Now, the Chinese say, no, we, we don't do that. You know, we don't know where you got that idea. And there is, strictly speaking, no formal written requirement. It's just that many American companies say in the real world, when we go there to do business, we're compelled to accept a joint venture partner and we're compelled to license our technology and our trade secrets to them or we can't do business here. We can't get the licenses we need, the bureaucratic uh, approvals, et cetera. and so, you know, the Trump administration is animated by that understanding of history, that they're, they're fundamentally dealing with a negotiating partner that they don't trust. And so they're trying to design, and this is very difficult for obvious reasons, they're trying to design an agreement with a partner they don't trust that will guarantee performance. Now, the Chinese, for their part, have a, a very long memory of being badly treated and bullied by foreigners. And the Communist Party of China in particular has uh, cultivated a narrative that starts in the 1840s with the Opium Wars, where the the big power of the day, the British, basically forced China to open their ports to all sorts of foreign goods, including opium. And then the other Western powers came in behind Great Britain and got the same terms. And a very weak Qing dynasty was compelled to accept the deal foisted on them by stronger foreign entities. And in the Communist Party's history, that century of humiliation ends in 1949 when the party uh, staged the uh, Communist Revolution. And no Chinese leader, certainly not Xi Jinping, who's probably the most powerful Chinese figure since Deng or even Mao before him, uh, no Chinese leader can be seen by the public and by other political constituencies in the party as accepting the dictates of a foreign power. So you've got this collision between the U.S. trying to say you've got to do this, 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 and this, or else no deal, and the Chinese bristling and saying, you know, those days are gone. So how do they reach an agreement based on all of that? You know, that's a good question. Uh, and it, it's it's worth asking in terms of why was everyone so optimistic, you know, a week or so ago. And of course, some of that is because the parties were, were fanning that optimism. I mean, you know, as I, as I said earlier, the president uh, said a number of things that sounded like they were on the, the cusp of a deal. Uh, but the, the gap between the two um, is, at this point, I think, quite serious. And with the uh, political calendar starting to become an increasing consideration uh, for the U.S., 
you know, you can get an argument on both sides as to whether the politics of this argue for the president cutting a deal or continuing to fight China and confront China. Because it seems, based on reporting from the White House, is that the president wants to use this as an issue in 2020, something that he thinks will benefit him. Yeah, and I think, you know, I think you have to give the president credit for uh, catalyzing a change in the nature of the debate on China. Uh, there is now a bipartisan consensus that the bargain that the U.S. assumed it had made in 2000, 2001, that it would uh, support China coming into the global trading system. And in return, the assumption was China would over time liberalize both economically and politically. And nobody expected them to become a parliamentary democracy, you know, like a, a Western country. But the expectation was there would be more and more liberalization. And so the relationship between the U.S. and China would not be adversarial or confrontational, but more of a partnership. And certainly that was a story you could believe for several years, including into the Hu Jintao uh, era. Uh, but since Xi Jinping has taken office, I think you know the, there's an increasing sense that that bargain either was a, a mistake from the beginning or just has not worked out as was expected. Um, and so the terms have to change. Let me remind our listeners that we are talking with David Lynch. He covers global trade issues for The Washington Post. and. One of our go-to people here at C-SPAN Radio when we want to get an explanation on what all of this means. I want to get your reaction to what the president's chief economic advisor, Larry Kudlow, said to Chris Wallace Sunday on Fox News Sunday. Can I substitute um, trade negotiation for trade war? I mean, after all, we're talking. We will talk some more. I understand, the but we have tariffs uh, on them. They have tariffs on us. We're well, threatening to vastly increase is part of it's a, not a negotiation we're is, taking action it is a negotiation and part of the negotiation oh. is taking action i mean okay but here but answer my question one which, of is, which, I've is, learned, which is how one, far one of the things i've learned in, in fairness um one of the things i've learned under president trump is that tariffs are part of negotiations and they show that we do mean business and we will take action and we're told after that exchange that the president had a few words with Larry Kudlow because Larry Kudlow basically admitted that it will cost American consumers. And, and you know, Larry's an economist and, uh, you know, I suppose to, to his credit, recognized reality there. There's simp the, although the president continues to insist that these tariffs are somehow paid by China and that this is a windfall of, of money that's coming into the country, that's, there's just no factual support for that. And so Larry's recognizing reality when he, when he admits that Americans are, are going to pay that. Um, the other interesting element there is the idea of whether the tariffs are a negotiating tool or whether they're the desired end state in and of themselves. And certainly the president has often talked about the tariffs as a negotiating tool. He, he, and he talked about it not just in the context of China, but also with Canada and Mexico when he was negotiating a, a new North American trade deal. The problem, though, is that none of the tariffs that have been put on have ever been taken off, including the steel and aluminum tariffs that went on uh, to deal with uh, what the administration sees as excess capacity from China flooding global markets and depressing prices. Um, those tariffs are still on Canada and Mexico, and that's proving to be a stumbling block in getting that new North American deal through the Congress because Senate Republicans representing farm states that are being hurt by Mexican retaliation for those tariffs say, we're not voting on the thing until you get rid of the tariffs. 
But it increasingly appears, and there's always been a constituency within the administration that has favored this, of tariffs as the outcome, as the desired outcome. Raise the tr these trade barriers, thus removing the efficiencies that led companies to go offshore to begin with, force supply chains to come back to the United States and thereby lead to a, a real revitalization of American manufacturing. That's That's been the argument. And of course, there is a real question mark if Congress will even pass the USMCA because Speaker Pelosi and congressional Democrats say right now they don't like it. Right. I mean, Pelosi's left the door very wide open. I mean, she, I think deliberately she's been very careful to say, you know, I, the Speaker, want to get to yes. You know, she she voted for NAFTA, the original trade deal back in the in the 90s, uh, which is unpopular with many Democrats. Uh, and and so she, her public stance has been, I want to get to yes, but we need stronger enforcement terms on some of the labor provisions. Uh, and she's asking for the deal to be reopened. For the moment, that seems to be a non-starter. There are ways that people say this could be finessed with perhaps a side letter or some other mechanisms. So. There, there's still a chance of getting that done. The issue is the clock is ticking. Uh, the original goal was to get it done before the August research that, uh, recess. That looks very difficult slash impossible at this point. And if this thing starts to slide closer and closer to the start of the primaries next year, its fate gets very uncertain. Let me put another issue on the table, David Lynch, the whole issue of intellectual property. And you write about the entity list and you refer to it as the death penalty. What, what is that? Well, this is a Commerce Department uh, list or, or punishment uh, most recently used against one of China's highest profile, most important companies, Huawei, which is a telecommunications company, uh, very successful globally. And being on that list requires any American company, Qualcomm, Google, anybody who wants to sell Huawei parts for its equipment. They have to go to the Commerce Department and get a license. Now, they may be able to get the license. They may not be able to get the license, but it gives the U.S. government control over Huawei's, over the health of Huawei's supply chain. And so you can imagine an outcome, for instance, where in the short term, perhaps the U.S. grants the licenses, allows Qualcomm, which is a good example, to continue supplying uh, chips and parts to, uh, to Huawei. But at any point, down the road, if Huawei does something that the United States government doesn't like, they're now on a short leash and Washington can, can give it a yank. Here in the U.S., Andy Purdy, who is a veteran of the George W. Bush administration, now serving as the chief security officer for Huawei. He appeared recently on C-SPAN's The Communicators Program and this question from host Peter Slen. Why is Huawei considered a threat to national security here in the U.S.? Well, it's a complicated issue. There's not a simple answer to it. There is a geopolitical overlay of the issues related to Huawei. They're steeped in, ever since the fall of the Soviet Union, the rise of China economically and militarily in the world. Uh, the reach of China through the Belt and Road Initiative to Africa and, and, and around the world, the advances in technology by Africa, some, uh, the advances in technology by China, excuse me, uh, some of the issues that the U.S. government has with China uh, have, have been a, a, a major concern, that some of which are the subject of the trade talks. Some of them may have been deferred to, to future conversations. So the U.S. is not safe in cyberspace. And so the U.S. looks at things from a risk perspective, whether it's national security or other risks. 
And from a national security perspective, they don't just look at companies or countries who are uh, hostile to us from a national security perspective. They look at potential. Does a, comp does a country have the opportunity and capabilities, if they turn against the United States, to cause us great harm? And so it's that kind of a risk-based perspective that is affecting uh, the perspective of, of the U.S. Uh, toward Huawei. It, it's really much a country focus, much more than a company focus. That conversation with Andy Purdy. He is a leading point person for Huawei here in the United States. David Lynch, what are you hearing? Well, I think there's three issues. There's technology, there's strategic rivalry, and there's the changing nature of globalization. The technology is that, you know, if we have Huawei equipment in the U.S. network, uh, the worry is that the, the Chinese engineers who develop it can devise a, a backdoor that we won't be aware of that would allow them to sneak in some malware or something else that in the event of a conflict between the U.S. and China could be activated and could disable any of our critical systems. That can seem both fanciful and, and completely plausible. The political overlay for that is that although Huawei uh, describes itself as a a private company owned by its, its shareholders and its employees, they are in the Chinese system, in the U.S. view, at the mercy of the government. And so if the government says to Huawei, design that back door, and if the government says five years from now we're in a conflict over the Taiwan Straits, flip the switch and turn off the U.S. Navy's communication system or turn off uh, the lights in Washington, D.C., Huawei will have no choice but to comply. Then the globalization part of this is, if you step back, since since the Berlin Wall came down, since the end of the Soviet Union in 91, the world has been building ever thicker economic links between countries all around the world. And the focus for three decades has been on the positive side of that. That's great. We can get... Uh, we can make our economy much more efficient. We can buy cheaper products, cheaper consumer goods from China, but we can also buy cheaper uh, equipment that companies here can use to operate more efficiently. It makes them more competitive, allows them to, to win contracts in other third markets and thus hire more Americans. And it's the focus has been on all the positives associated with that, and there have been lots of positives associated with it. But increasingly, and particularly since the, the economic crisis, which has really rattled people and I think that continues to reverberate through societies around the world, increasingly the focus has been on the costs of these relationships. Okay, it's good we get these cheap products from China, but what's the vulnerability associated with that? We're, we're, we're buying this Chinese equipment presumably because it's uh, more cost-effective and, and in Huawei's case often more technically uh, accomplished and, and productive, but we're exposing ourselves. We're leaving ourselves open. This is the argument uh, to the Chinese, and so the focus now is is becoming much more. Wait a minute. I, uh, maybe I don't care about saving a little bit if it's making me, if it's exposing me to more dangers. Maybe I need to put up barriers so I'll feel safer. And that I think is sort of the the real. Uh, fundamental nature of what's going on. So let me break this down bottom line on two different levels. If you are a farmer that sells beef or soybeans to China, what will this mean? Well, you've lost your markets for the for the moment, and uh, it's not clear when they're coming back. 
uh, and beef farmers uh, also are in trouble because the administration, President Trump, on his third or fourth day in office, pulled the U.S. out of another trade deal, the 12-nation Trans-Pacific Partnership that had been negotiated uh, under the Obama administration. And uh, he, he sees that deal as something that would uh, encourage additional loss of American jobs, erosion of manufacturing and the like. Uh, the argument in favor of the deal was it created a, a, a an Asian or Pacific uh, trading community with China on the outside. It would set high standards, and if China wanted to get in, they'd have to come in on our terms. Since we're out of it now, some of our even some of our allies, uh, like the Australians, can now sell beef into Japan uh, and at a much lower tariff rate than American cattle farmers or beef farmers, beef ranchers. Uh, so, you know, they're on the outs there. They're losing markets in China, which everybody hopes uh, would be a short-term thing. But, you know, the president said recently that he wants to take some of this tariff revenue, which is, again, taxes collected from Americans, and funnel another $15 billion to farmers to compensate them for their losses in the trade war. And at some point, I mean, this is a very unusual economic policy from a Republican administration in particular to have the government raising taxes, celebrating the higher taxes, and then redistributing that money from one group to another group. That's usually the kind of stuff that Republicans hate. And conversely, if you are a large company, and I thought this is fascinating because you reported that uh, for the first time, Chinese consumers bought more Cadillacs than Americans. And I'm assuming that these Cadillacs are manufactured in China. They are indeed. Uh, uh, GM has a, a big plant uh, in or outside Shanghai, um, and they I think they delivered something like 200,000 Cadillacs last year. And so what happens to the plant? Oh, well, the plant's fine because they're in China building, you know, with Chinese workers building American-designed cars for Chinese consumers. So they're fine. They're, they're inside the, the tariff wall. Now, there are – GM does uh, export – a smaller number of one model of Cadillac. I think it's the Escalade. And so those cars now face a higher tariff. I think the original tariff was 25%. It's now been hiked up to 40. Uh, And China has lowered its auto tariffs for other uh, countries. So again, the U.S. is is disadvantaged there. But if you're a U.S. company that might get parts from China, whether it's auto parts or textiles or whatever, do you ship those uh, plants to Vietnam or other countries if this tariff war continues? Well, that's certainly something that uh, an increasing number of companies are taking a look at. There have been, I wouldn't say isolated examples, but there have been some examples of companies, multinationals, already relocating supply chains out of China. It, the, the, the issue is it's, it's not as easy as it sounds, number one, uh, and it's, there's also a timing question. You, you, might, you might bear that uh, annoyance and cost and difficulty if you think this is a permanent world, right, that the tariffs are going to be there indefinitely, then yes, you're going to look at it and you're going to move. But if you're somebody who's been encouraged by the president's statements over the last six months and, and took them seriously, you might think, well, hang on. I, number one, I went to some trouble to qualify these suppliers as a company. You can't just, you know, it's not like you or I deciding, well, if I can't go to Walmart to buy my T-shirt, I'll go to Target. You know, it's just down the road for a for a big manufacturer who's 
uh, sourcing some parts, let's say, from China, they've got to go to that factory. They've got to make sure it meets its, the, the company standards. They've got to get their customers to sign on. They've got to get the people trained. There's a lot that goes into this, get it audited, inspected. And so if you want to then decide, well, China doesn't work for me anymore. I'll go to Vietnam or Cambodia or Bangladesh. You got to start that process all over again. And, you know, China has a lot of advantages that, you know, Vietnam's a large country, but they don't have the infrastructure of China. They don't have the, the same size labor pool. And so there are reasons why people have gone to China. So let me conclude with what I realize admittedly is an impossible question, but you're an expert, so you can answer it. How and when will this be resolved? In the future. Uh, <laughs> And I have no idea. I have uh, I've I've been uh, often wrong uh, when trying to predict what President Trump would do. Um, I don't think we're going to get a short-term solution. Um, the next logical uh, inflection point is at the end of June when the president is scheduled to see uh, Xi Jinping at the G20 summit in Osaka, Japan. I think it's possible they could make some headway there. I think it's unlikely that the two presidents would be able to get down into the nitty-gritty and really resolve all these issues themselves. They might be able to, if they choose to, uh, they might be able to reinvigorate the talks potentially. Um, if And this is just speculation, but I wouldn't be surprised if the president wanted to get a deal uh, going into the into the campaign next year. But I don't think he wants just the political uh, nature of it. Uh, I, I don't think he wants to get it too early because once he's got a deal, he's then got to defend it. And whatever the deal is, there will be winners and losers. And the Democrats will speak for the losers, whoever they are, and will complain that he did not stand tough and that he cut a bad deal and that a Democratic president would be tougher and get a better deal. So I think the longer he delays that argument, the better. But it has to be at that level. It's now president to president. Well, I I think uh, I think we are either at or very close to the point at which the ministerial level, the, the cabinet level negotiators have probably done as much as they can. I think there are, there are some tough issues to be resolved that probably do require presidential level decisions. And no shortage of stories for somebody like you to cover. No, I <laughs> I, uh, I can't complain. David Lynch of the Washington Post. Thank you very much for stopping by the C-SPAN Radio Studios. We appreciate your time and your expertise. Happy to do it. And a reminder, this podcast is available on the free C-SPAN radio app. Be sure to check out all of our programming online anytime at cspan.org. We thank you for listening.